So today we're continuing with our series, If Only Things We're Anxious About. And we're, we're looking at things like our, our wishes, our fears, our worries, our concerns, and, and how they drive us in ways maybe we're not even aware of it. Now, we all know people who are, are stubborn and, and argumentative. You know, they, they, they just like to do it. And we all like to do that at some point in time, but some people, they really kind of thrive off of this. Uh, like, like this little boy. He's five years old, and he said a curse word one day in response to not getting his way. I got eye level with him and told him, we don't use words like that in our house. This child looked me dead in my eyes and said, this is an apartment, not a house. <laughs> this, yeah, we know people who are like that, absolutely. And, and sometimes we can be like that. But the people who, who really enjoy that kind of stuff, you know, they're also some of the best advocates, the people who care the most about making sure we're safe and protected and, and cared for and appreciated. And when our voices aren't heard, they make sure those voices are raised up and lifted up. And they do all these amazing and wonderful things. And this tweet really, I think, captured some of their importance in our lives. Uh, quiet laid back men, why do you go for loud, fiery women? And a man tweeted back, someone got to tell the waiter I ordered mashed potatoes and it ain't going to be me. <laughs> right? We need those people in our lives because some of us, we can't do that. We're not good at doing that. And this is, uh, I think, really summarizes the character of Peter in the Gospels. That Peter is someone who, who's willing to just say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done. He's kind of brash. He's going to stand up and, and, and do it because he wants to defend and care and be bold in these ways. And this is what's happening in our scripture lesson today, that Jesus says something and Peter actually gets upset with Jesus. And so we're going to read the text. It comes from Matthew. I want you to pay attention to why does Peter get upset with Jesus? Why does he get upset with Jesus? All right. So this comes from Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make me stumble, for you are not thinking God's thoughts but human thoughts. May God add a blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the living out of this scripture. So did you notice why, why Peter gets upset at Jesus? He gets upset at Jesus because Jesus says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna go through this pain, I'm gonna die. And Peter says, you, no, don't do, that's a terrible thing. We're against people suffering and in pain, right? We, we wanna avoid all those things. And, and so Peter reprimands Jesus about this. And we know that feeling, right, where we want to protect people and keep them safe. So last week, Danny and I, we went with uh, one of my buddies and his two twin girls to a crawdads game in Hickory. And the game started at 7 o'clock, and their bedtime was at like 7.30, you know. Uh, we were setting ourselves up for success. And so we go to the game, and they eat uh, a little bit of food, not, not as much as they probably should. They eat a whole bowl of ice cream, definitely as much as they should. You know, we're celebrating. We're having fun. Uh, and then when we're leaving the game, we made it far longer than we thought we were going to make it. We made it to like the sixth in inning. It was amazing. Uh, but when we got out of the car and we got there, what really surprised me is... Uh, they, they both just grabbed my hand and the other one grabbed Danny's hand, 
when we got out of the car and we walked through the parking lot and uh, their dad took a picture of us walking through the parking lot. I didn't even say, would you grab my hand so we can be safe walking through the park? They just grabbed my hand, yeah. So as we're leaving the game and, you know, they're, they're exhausted, which in parent language means cranky, <laughs> frustrated, right? We go outside the gate and I, I'm ready. I'm like, okay, you ready? I've got my hands, you know? And she looks at me and she goes, no way. And she just bolts into the parking lot. And before I even have time to do anything, here comes dad, right? With the other one in his arm, just screaming and chasing after the kid. Come back here. What are you doing? Don't do, don't do, right? This is the response when we're afraid of someone getting hurt, right? This is dad's response. No, no, no. I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about, and not just worried about her getting hurt and the pain of her getting hurt, but the pain he's going to feel if she gets hurt. Right? Mixed in so often with our fear of others getting hurt is our, our fear of what we're going to feel when they get hurt. And this is what Peter's experiencing. Right? The, it's not just about Jesus. It is about Jesus, but it's also about Peter and what he's feeling and what he's experiencing, what he's worried about. And we all know those, those feelings. Uh, and so part of, part of what I think we need to get from this scripture right away is that Jesus is also afraid of pain and afraid of getting hurt. They says, he gets upset at Peter and calls him a stumbling block, right? You could stop me from doing this. You could influence me because I'm also scared of pain, also scared of suffering, which says to me that that kind of fear is very human. It's very normal. And so often uh, what we teach ourselves and kind of what we surround ourselves with is that we should never feel fear. And we should, we should never feel it's a bad thing to feel it. But the truth is, unless we feel fear, I don't think we're feeling love either. That these two things are intimately connected, uh, but we talk about them like they're not. And as Christians, we quote a lot of Bible stuff. Right, we say, oh, the Bible says do not fear. The Bible says uh, we shouldn't be afraid. Uh, there's a verse in 1 John that says perfect love drives out fear, which I know people really love to use. Uh, but if you read more of that section, actually what it's saying is, oh, we don't have to fear God's judgment because God loves us. And so it's not even about us feeling fear. It's about us being afraid of God doing something to us. It doesn't mean what we so often use it to mean. And so I want us to explore some of what, what fear does in our lives and, and how it's actually a gift in a lot of ways. Because uh, we love, we fear. Because we love, we fear. Right? It's because we love kids and spouses and friends and pets and neighbors. It's because of how much we love them that we fear pain and suffering and loss happening to them and to ourselves. So if you don't fear anything, I think we should be concerned because if you don't fear anything, I'm not sure we love anything. You know, in the movies, uh, when you see a ghost or a vampire, and a lot of times they'll show uh, there's no shadow, right? they're, they're, they don't cast a shadow, and it's kind of like the clue that they're not alive. That's not real. Right? The, the same thing happens with love, that if love is real, it casts a shadow, and that shadow is fear. Right? That's how we know the love is real. And so we carry these two things together. It's just part of being human. It's just part of living life. Uh, and so 
That sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> but we don't want that. We don't want that, but that's part of what we carry. So the question becomes, what do we do with it? And how do we learn to handle it well? Uh, because we love, we have fear. Because we love, we feel pain. It's just that intimately connected. We suffer because we have a heart. And so uh, a lot of times what the fear does is it inspires us to try and limit suffering. Right? Try and help make sure people are okay for the, the, their own sake and for our own sake. Right? Fear can motivate us in good ways to do that uh, when it's used well at its best. Right? So things like uh, at our best, this is why we make little kids hold our hands when we go through parking lots. And at our best, uh, this is why there are doctors. And at our best, this is why there are vaccines. And at our best, this is why there are soup kitchens and food pantries and places for people to sleep who don't have homes. And at our best, this is why uh, there are seatbelts in cars. Because we want to make sure people are safe and we want to make sure people are okay because we're afraid of them being hurt. And so at our best, fear drives us in these healthy, good ways to limit suffering. But we don't always fear at our best. Sometimes we fear, fear at our worst. We, f we fear in ways that we want to stop all pain and suffering no matter what the cost is. So during World War II, uh, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, if you might be familiar with this history, that uh, we took Japanese Americans and we put them in concentration camps. Not because we knew anything was gonna happen, but because we were afraid something might happen. And there's a word for that, actually. Uh, I don't know if it existed back then, but we call that preemptive fear. And, and the language has become like a, a preemptive strike, a preemptive attack, that we're gonna do something first just in case something may happen to us. And the first time I started noticing that word and that phrase getting used was after 9-11. So 9-11, um, because believe it or not, not everyone knows about 9-11 now. There are people who were born after that. And so 9-11, uh, there were terrorists who hijacked some planes and flew them into two towers in New York City and flew, flew one into the Pentagon in D.C. And our response as a country was to be terrified, absolutely and scared and worried and afraid of any more pain or suffering or heartache or loss. And so what leaders in our country started saying was, well, we have to act preemptively. We're worried, what if something like this happens again? We, we need to strike first, we need to stop, even if we're not sure, even if we don't know exactly what's gonna happen, we need to stop this fear. And we're not the only country who acted in that way or who, or who acts in that way. So uh, in July of 2005, there were four suicide bombers that set off bombs in London, London, England. Three of them blew up trains and, and one blew up a bus. And then a couple weeks later, Jean-Charles de Menezes was working in London. He was a Brazilian electric contractor, an electrician. And he was on his way to work when plain-clothed officers started following him. And he went to a train station, and the officers chased him down, knocked him to the ground, and shot him multiple times in the head. 
And what they found out was that he was just a regular guy going to work on his normal morning commutes. But at that time in London, they were given the authority because of what had happened before. That if they thought someone might be a suicide bomber, they were allowed to go ahead and just shoot them in the head to ensure nothing happened, even though they weren't sure anything would happen. And so often when we, we act preemptively out of our fear that, what do you think is going to happen? That's exactly what's going to happen. And the London police came out and they apologized for such a tragedy. Except we know that's built into how we respond in these ways when fear is driving us in such powerful ways. And we have that same struggle in our own country. Police officers, when they're afraid, they can use lethal force to protect themselves and to protect others, and we want our police protected, and we want our citizens protected, but also built into that, we've seen innocent people get harmed too. Our fear, our fear of suffering, when we hold on to it so tight, when we act preemptively to try and stop anything possible that might happen, we often end up creating more harm or a different kind of harm. It's messy. It's not clear-cut. It's not clean. It's a difficult thing to wrestle and struggle with. And we do this not just on these big scales like national or in, or in how we protect through agencies or groups. Right? We do this on personal levels, too, for ourselves. Right? We talk bad about ourselves first because we're afraid someone else will talk bad. We make fun of ourselves first because we're worried someone else is going to make fun of us. We do all these little subtle things preemptively because we fear pain, because we fear being hurt. Fear of pain can turn us into controlling parents, friends, spouses, bosses, leaders. Right? When, when our fear goes unchecked in these ways, it can do a lot of damage for ourselves and for others. It's powerful stuff. So when I was in college, uh, I had a friend, she was, she was dating someone, and they broke up, and it was just a, a really bad breakup. And she was so hurt by it, I just saw this shift in her, where she started backing further away, and further away and further away from people. She became, just over time, less loving and less compassionate and less caring, because she had been hurt. So she made the switch of, I'm afraid of being hurt, and therefore I'll stop loving. Because these things are that closely connected. I'm not sure you can separate one from the other completely and in healthy ways. And it shrunk her heart. So the truth is there's a cost to love. There's always a cost to love. There always has been and there always will be. And if we love, then the pain and suffering is unavoidable. We don't get out of it. It's a part of what we do. And it happens to each of us, not because it's God-ordained, but because that's a part of life. Right? No one makes it out of life alive. So we'll all experience some kind of suffering and pain. And so this is what Peter doesn't get. Peter wants to stop 
the suffering and pain. Peter wants to avoid it altogether. And Jesus says, that's not the way. That's not how it works. You can't have one without the other. And when we limit our suffering for ourselves and others, it, it just it causes harm in ourselves and in others. So in the end, what we actually have to do is be open to the pain, be open to the grief, be open to the loss, be open to the suffering, which is incredibly difficult. It's not that there aren't real things to fear. There are real things to fear. There are, are real things we need to be protecting and caring about and worrying about and concerned about, absolutely. But we can't let these things take us away from loving, from being open to how God is working in our lives and the lives of others. So in her book, uh, My Grandfather's Blessing, Rachel Naomi Remen shares this story. She says, Richard was a widower. His wife had suffered a long and painful death from cancer, and then he met Celia. They came to love each other and each other's children dearly. Less than a year into their courtship, Celia discovered a lump in her breast. She had gone to the doctor alone and was alone when she received the devastating news. The lump was malignant. Once reality set in, her first thought was for Richard and his children. They had been profoundly wounded by cancer only a few years before, and they were still healing from it. How could she bring this terrible thing into their lives again? She called Richard immediately, and without telling him why, simply broke off their relationship. For several weeks, she refused his phone calls and returned his letters, but Richard would not give up and begged her to see him. Finally, Celia relented and arranged to meet him to say goodbye. And when they met, she could see the deep strain and hurt on his face. Richard gently asked Celia why she had broken up with him. And finally, on the verge of tears, she told Richard the truth that she had found a lump in her breast, that it was malignant, that she had undergone surgery a few weeks before and would begin chemotherapy the following week. You and the children have lived through this once already, she told him. I won't put you through it again. He looked at her and his jaw dropped and he says, you have cancer? And she just starts crying and saying, yeah. And he says, oh, Celia, and he starts to laugh. He says, we can do cancer. We know how to do cancer. I thought you didn't love me. But she did. And they got married. And they went through these treatments of cancer and life and suffering together. Because you can't have love without pain and suffering and loss and hurt. Loving will always cost us something. But so will the refusal to love. And that may cost us even more. And this is the lesson Jesus is trying to get across to Peter. It's a part of life. And we've got to engage it, and to engage it well. You know, when, when my dad passed, I guess it's been about five years now, uh, I'm one of nine kids. And we sat around realizing uh, talk, all this pain, all this hurt, the lucky one of us gets to go through this eight more times 
nine if you include my mom. That doesn't include uh, our spouses or kids or nieces or nephews or friends or any of our hopes and wishes and dreams and health struggles, right? All, all these things. The lucky one gets to go through it all. We don't avoid it. The question becomes, how do we stay open to the love as we go through it all? And this is what Jesus is inviting us to do. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, not to say, Peter, you're out, you're horrible. He says, remember your spot, it's behind me, following the footsteps of your rabbi who says, we go through pain and suffering, and as we do it, we love along the way, even though it's difficult, even though it's dirty, even though it hurts. And that the truth is we, we can pass that along if we don't do it well the bitterness and the hurt and the brokenness. And we all know people who are in that spot. And we don't want to be those people. And so we trust in something bigger. We trust that the pain and the hurt and the suffering is in the end. We trust that even if we don't know why it's happening or can't understand it or can't see past it, you know, because Jesus says, I'll be resurrected. Peter can't see that far. He doesn't understand what that means or what that looks like. And so often when we're going through pain, we don't understand it either. We just hope and we trust that it doesn't end here. That maybe in some way this is calling us to love more deeply. Maybe in some way this is making us more compassionate. Maybe in some way God is using this for good. We try and trust all of that and hold on to that hope. Because we're going to go through it. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to go through it well. To do the best we can. And to support each other so that we all do it the best we can. That's our hope. And on some days it feels bleak, but on some days it feels like the most important thing I could ever do with my life is to love well, even through the pain. And so this is the invitation of Christ, the way we're invited to walk, and the footsteps of our rabbi, the footsteps of our teacher to become more like Jesus and more like Christ. And may God give us the hope and the strength and the trust to do it. I invite you to take your hands and put them palms up in your lap. And let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the ways you love, grateful for the ways you encourage, grateful for the ways uh, you let us experience love. Give us courage that as we experience pain, as we experience the fear of pain, that we stay open to, to loving and how you're investing in us and guiding us and helping us even when we can't see it. On our hardest days and on our best. And so we offer our, our life and our love and our fears to you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.